Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I think that today we're gonna learn quite a bit from the founder that we're gonna have as a guest. You know, he's he's been through the full cycle a bunch of times. So that means that we're gonna be learning about fundraising, about acquisitions, about turnarounds, you name it. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest, Craig Walker, to the show. Welcome on board here. Hey, thanks for having me here. So, Craig, how was life growing up, being born and raised in Cupertino? Um, it was it was a really interesting place. You know, I was born in the mid-60s, and Cupertino used to be pretty much all apricot orchards at the time. And it wasn't until, geez, I was in like 7th or 8th grade that Apple Computer appeared, and it started to become kind of the hub of the Silicon Valley. But it was a really, really great place to grow up. And I believe you mentioned to me that Steve Jobs was your neighbor. So how was that yeah. like? Yeah, it was crazy. So I lived on this little street in Cupertino that maybe had, I don't know, 15 homes on it. And about eight homes up was the house that he lived in for a couple of years when I think he was and a couple others all lived in that house when they were stopped starting Apple. Wow. So, so I guess question here is why did you decide to go to law rather than you know build a business you know having all these incredible people in your same street yeah well i was only uh nine or ten years old so i really didn't, <laughs> really didn't know what was going on um but no i uh, i'd gone to gone to berkeley undergrad and then i went and got my mba at georgetown and came back and went to law school again back at berkeley and really was just drawn to all the action that was happening in the silicon valley and and being a lawyer was a great view into that because you got to represent startups, you got to represent big public companies that were acquiring startups, you got to represent venture capitalists, you got to represent investment bankers. So you really got, it was a perfect way to see the entire cycle and really see it more than once. And, and I wouldn't, I thought that was a great experience. Now, one thing that that I found really, really surprising. I mean, I'm I'm a recovering lawyer as well, so I I know the drill, Craig. So I guess yeah. the, um, the 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 one thing that stood up for me was that you did your MBA, and typically when people do their MBAs, you know, they are clear about hey, business here or business there. Uh, but you went into law school. Why why did you go into law school after having that exposure to business? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I got out of business school in 91, and back then, basically, the two career paths coming out were 
either go into management consulting or go into investment banking. And neither of them were very interesting to me. So I came back, worked at Apple for a year. And while I was working at Apple, I took the LSAT and decided to go back to law school. Cool. So let's talk about your years as a, as an attorney. So the um, at the beginning you were more like in representing startups and and VCs and and I think that this was around the nineties. I mean mid nineties. So I guess the the landscape has quite you know changed quite a bit since then. So so what, what was it like for you like being you know in that environment and what were some of the lessons that that you learned? Yeah, you know, it was it was super interesting. So I was working at a law firm called Brobeck, Flagler & Harrison in Palo Alto. And in the mid-90s, it was basically Palo Alto was dominated by two big law firms. One was Brobeck, the other was Wilson Sonsini. So we had fantastic clients, like Cisco Systems was our client, and I was on their M&A team. And Cisco from 95 to 99, I think, acquired 24 companies. So we had just a ton of M&A experience on that. But we represented Kleiner Perkins, Sequoia Capital. Um, I remember working, representing Kleiner when they made their Series A investment into Juniper Networks. And I was, uh, Polycom was a client of ours when they were a private company. I worked on their IPO. And it's interesting when you look back, a lot of those companies are obviously still around and still, still thriving. So it's, it really hasn't changed all that much. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, as, as you take a look at your career as a whole, right? I mean, you've, you've done the full cycle and we're going to talk about these transactions just in a bit. But I guess here, when you were representing companies doing M&As or IPOs, what did you learn? What were some of the patterns of, of getting a deal done? You know, it was interesting because all of the deals that you worked on, whether it was an IPO, whether it was an M&A, or whether it was a venture financing, both parties to those deals wanted to get the deal done. And so it wasn't a matter of lawyers going in and, and being completely argumentative and difficult to deal with. You know, it really showed you that, hey, both sides are looking for a positive outcome here. And really, it taught me to look for win-win solutions because... You know, business deals that aren't win-win deals or business deals that are totally one-sided never really work out. And I think that really kind of created the framework for my, you know, business philosophies later in life of seeing just how, you know, how one plus one can equal three if you do the right kind of partnerships. Was there like one mistake that you saw constantly happening uh, during your, your legal years uh, here in the mid-90s? that you told yourself or that you reminded yourself not to make that same mistake, you know, when you were being the operator? You know, you'd have occasional startups that would appear to be doing great. And then all of a sudden, you know, for whatever reason, they falter and they go out of business. And what I realized is there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot, there's a tendency to almost grow too fast at times or to, you know, like, yeah, I'd say being a CEO of a startup, you really got to keep your hand on the on the throttle. It's almost like you're you know you're driving a speedboat. You know, sometimes it makes a ton of sense to just floor it, and other times you got to throttle back and you know, work through some choppy waters before you go floor it again. And I think the ones the the lessons that I learned then were the guys who did nothing but just full throttle all the time. Sometimes that works if you're just like a rocket ship, um, but most of the times that really wasn't didn't lead to great outcomes. So I think just kind of learning how to have some judgment and balance and not just be crazy, you know, spending all the time um, was one of the lessons that I learned. 
Cool. And and how did you come across, you know, the idea of, hey, you know, I'm going to I'm going to switch boats here. I'm going to join a, a VC firm. How did that happen? Yeah, it was interesting. I always looked at the Silicon Valley as kind of a, a little bit of a hierarchy of, you know, you're, as a lawyer, you were involved in these deals, but you were, you know, and you were important, but you weren't making the decisions on whether or not you should do the deal. And I always wanted to get higher up the chain on, on closer to making those decisions. So I looked at it as you kind of had lawyers and like the next rung up would be or, uh, investment bankers. And then the next rung up would be venture capitalists. And then kind of like at the top of the heap to me would be founders. And so I would, had been a lawyer for a number of years and then was going to move to that next step up and was going to go join Piper Jaffrey as an investment banker when I started telling my clients I was leaving. And one of my clients, Telesoft Partners, was this venture fund that was starting in 96 to make investments coming out of the, the Telecom Deregulation Act of 96. And he asked me to join him and to join him making telecom internet investments. and. That was a great step that basically like moved you up to the VC level and, um, you know, making telecom and internet and, and those kind of next gen communication investments in the late nineties was a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel. Like I think out of our first eight investments, like four got acquired, two went public and maybe two went out of business, but it was just, it was a ridiculous time to be. You get to be involved in that type of investing. So that was a really nice way to get, you know, closer to the top without having to go through that interim step. And I'm I'm you know, it's I'm I'm thinking that this is very interesting to me because the um there's so many folks that I speak with that are like wildly successful that had a background where they were able to really get into the pattern recognition, you know, given the the exposure that they had to transactions, to founders or to whatever that was, either as a consultant, an investment banker, or perhaps um, a VC. So in your case, you had the chance of working in this firm where you were investing in companies that would later be acquired by the likes of Cisco or Intel. So what were some of the patterns that you were able to identify on these founders that you ended up investing that led you to believe these guys are going to be successful? Yeah, you know, um, probably the two biggest things were the were the team themselves. Like, what was their background? If they, a background of success is a, a huge indicator of future success. So that was, that was number one. And then secondly, I was always most interested in the size of the market and the market opportunity. And if it was a massive market that was, you know, traditionally dominated by a legacy incumbent, those to me were always the most attractive things to look at. And so, so those were, those were kind of the two things that I, I always tried to identify and where we had, you know, where we had investments that didn't do as well. It generally wasn't ever like technology risk. It wasn't like the tech just didn't work. It was usually some interpersonal dynamic with the founders or some competitive threat that they didn't anticipate. Um, which is why, like, you can't, you'll never be able to see all the competitive threats, but definitely being able to see a team that worked well together in the past was, to me, kind of like the, kind of the, the piece that really stood out to me is your best marker for success. Got it. And then after doing this for a couple of years, you get kind of like pushed or transitioned into, into one of the companies of the portfolio. So, so tell us what happened. Yeah. So, so this was now, if you recall, this was 
you know, the bubble of 2000. And we had invested in a company named Dialpad Communications that was a real pioneer in the voice over IP space. And it used, and if you think back to 1999 when it was founded, everyone was on dial-up for their internet. And also during that time, like international long-distance phone calls cost anywhere from 50 cents to a dollar a minute. And the quality was pretty bad in its own right. So what, what Dialpad had figured out is if you could use your dial-up connection and then move that phone call to the internet, therefore bypassing all the, all the carriers and all the cost, you could, you could basically create this category of voice over IP and, and you know, lower the cost dramatically for international calls. So that was one of our, our hotter portfolio companies. But the bubble burst in 2000 in you know, March 2001, and the company had grown way too big, was burning way too much money. And um, so around October of 2001, you know, the board board decided, hey, we need to make a change. We've got to bring someone in affirmatively to lower cost immediately and try to hold it together so they could sell the company before having to turn off the lights. And I was the guy they chose to, to go in to do that, which was supposed to be you know, a three-month journey. And it ended up being a four-and-a-half-year career um, where we ultimately turned it around, made it profitable, and got acquired by Yahoo. And we'll talk about that in just a, in just a minute. But I want to ask you, how big was the company when, when they brought you in? Yeah, so when I came in, my first day, there were about 150 employees. And that's after they had already done waves of layoffs. At its peak, it had been about 300 people. And, and why did they choose you? You know, I think, I think because I had the business background and I had the legal background, kind of a combination of, look, you're going to need someone who's, who's going to have to figure a bunch of stuff out. And there's no real people who have a ton of experience of going in and turning around companies. And so I think they, they chose a generalist who hopefully had a little bit of common sense and was willing to work hard. Got it. Got it. So, so then tell us about, you know, turning around a business is, um, is a challenge. So I guess, I guess for you, what was, what was that day where you came in? What was, what yeah, was, it was, what was that day like? I'll never forget. It was October 19th, 2001. And I get brought in, they have an all-hands meeting, there's about 150 people there, and and I get introduced as the new CEO, and they all start clapping, um, and that was kind of the hardest part, because I was there to give them the news that, that I had been brought in by the board to lower cost immediately, and the only way, and this is a, at a time when the company was burning $4 million a month, and only had about, you know... $4 million of cash in the bank and had about $10 million of debt. So it was a real upside down situation. Um, and so sadly, I had to tell them, hold the applause. You know, unfortunately, I'm here from the board, you know, I'm here to try to save, turn this company around. And the only way I can do that is to lower cost immediately. And the only way to lower cost immediately is to make headcount reductions. And then all of a sudden you can hear a pin drop in the room and, and, one of the hardest things was then figuring out how to get that team of 150 person. And I set this goal for myself. Like I had to get it from 150 down to 15 by the next payroll cycle. And so that was, that was probably my hardest professional, uh, professional thing that I've ever had to do before or since. And how are you able to keep the people, you know, the, those 15? Because, I mean, if they see, 
you know, over a hundred of their peers leaving, they're going to be like, I'm next. Yeah, it was, it was a really, really interesting time. So, well, the, the other thing that made it challenging was I didn't know anyone at the company either. So, so my first challenge was trying to figure out which 15 to keep. And so it was interesting. I went or every VP came to me and told me why they were, they were indispensable and needed to be part of the turnaround. So what I ended up doing is I said to like the seven different C-level executives or VPs, I all told them, hey, if you were me, what would your list of 15 people be? And so I ended up getting like seven different lists of 15. And then I compared those seven different lists and there were, there were three names on each of the list. Um, and so, of course, everyone put themselves and their cronies on it. But the people who actually were going to get stuff done, these three names kept appearing on everyone's list. So what I ended up doing is going to those three guys who were on everyone's list and said, okay, you guys are with me. You're going to be part of this turnaround, the four of us now. Who are the, who are the other 11? And then I let them choose the other 11. Um, but at the time, like at the time, it was super disruption in the Silicon Valley. Companies were closing left and right. So People were thrilled to, to be part of the turnaround operation. They weren't, you know, they weren't, no one wanted to lose a job and have to go enter that labor market. It was pretty rough. Of course. So I guess, uh, what do you think worked? What do you think worked? Because now you have 15 people. Now, finally, you've been able to reduce the, the cost from the 4 million bucks that you were doing a month to, to you know, obviously the outcome, you know, we, we talked about it, which is the acquisition ultimately of, of Yahoo. But what do you think worked? You know, what was amazing is we got it down to 15 people um, and, you know, 10 of those were engineers or network ops, right? Like it was keeping the servers running and keeping the service running was the key. And we had 14 million users around the globe and they like, they weren't reading, you know, the San Francisco Chronicle was writing about us. Like they, they just liked having this great service. So it was, it was shocking. Like after a month or two, we look around and we're like, Hey, what did the other 135 people used to do? Because, like, legitimately, we're keeping this thing running with only 15. Um, but I think what we ended up, you know, what we learned through the process was, one, you, the company had been giving away the service for free and trying to make it up on ads. And we changed that and immediately started charging for, for phone calls. So that got us an instant cash infusion. And we were able to renegotiate a bunch of debt and, and work with creditors and do a bunch of things to clean up the company. Um, and it's just like uh, over the next four years, it taught us to be really, really scrappy and to, to like every dollar counts. And, you know, as a founder, you know, every dollar in the bank is oxygen. Just don't waste your oxygen. And so you know, we, we took a long time to grow back up as a company. But, you know, by the time we got acquired, we were over 50 employees. We were profitable. We had kind of dug ourselves out of it and we had a really cool, unique technology that Yahoo wanted to buy. Got it. And obviously Yahoo ended up buying the business for $50 million. That was the report amount, which is uh, really cool. So so did you guys, uh, did you come to a point, hey, you know, with the board, you know, it's time right now to survey the market or did Yahoo come to you guys or what happened? Yeah, we were just heads down operating and Yahoo came to us in 2005. And at the time, um, you know, Yahoo Messenger was like the dominant IM client in the world. And they were starting to get, they were starting to lose market share to Skype in Europe primarily because Skype gave you phone calls as well as 
instant messaging. So they wanted to be able to counter Skype's phone capabilities and buying Valpad and merging it into Yahoo Messenger gave them that ability. So it was, we weren't looking, we were profitable, we were growing, um, but then they came along and it, it just made sense. And, and one of the things that I thought it was pretty cool is that after the transaction was closed, uh, you, you only stayed with Yahoo for literally three months. So it was a very short vesting and resting. So yeah. right after that, you, you went at it again and, and you started, you know, obviously you co-founded what would become your, your first, you know, business really that you co-founded, even though the other one, you know, it was, it was kind of like you probably felt the, the sense of ownership too, because you brought it from, from nothing where it was to something. But I guess the um, how did you guys come, you know, with the idea of, of this next business and, and how what was that transition process like? Yeah. So so my co-founder and I, Vincent Paquet, so we were, you know, we had been doing Dialpad for the prior four and a half years. And Vincent was actually one of the three names on those lists. And so uh, so we um, we had looked at voice over IP as. You know, up until that time, voice over IP had always been about just lowering costs and how do you make a phone call free? And Skype really had dominated that. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to use voice over IP to basically give every feature that you could possibly have on a phone call to the end user to control through the web. And basically, we give you we give you one phone number, we give you your grand central number. That's like my number for life. And then if you called that number, if people called that number, rather than trying to figure out if I was at home or if I was at work, if I had a cell phone, they could just call that grand central number and we'd ring all of your numbers and we'd give you all of your features online and you'd save all your voicemail to the web and it would be transcribed into text and you could block spam callers and you could transfer calls and you could change old music. You could do we basically just wanted to give the end user basically make them their own little phone company and give them access to all the features that used to be controlled by the carriers. And in doing so, the carriers who never really treated customers very well because a lot of them were you know, former monopolists, they became kind of dumb pipes in the process and all the cool features lived at the Grand Central layer. And so that was the idea behind it. And um, if you think back, to those days, you know, people had a work number and a different voicemail system. People had a home number and a home, a home voicemail system. People had a cell number and a cell voicemail. And back then, cell cost a lot, so people weren't using the cell, you know, like water like they do today. And so it really kind of served the need at the right time, and um, was really cool service. And, and you know, that's that's what made Google so interested in it. They, you know, they saw this as an opportunity to provide a really cool service to basically everyone who had a phone. You know, it's uh, it's interesting because obviously you guys, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about this, you got acquired by Google, but the um, at the time of the acquisition, you had only raised a Series A. I mean, you had you guys raised like something like 4 million bucks. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We raised 4 million from Halsey Miner, who was the founder of CNET. And, and 18 months later, we were acquired by Google and we still had a million in the bank. And um, had built the product and had launched it, and you know, we're still a pretty small team. I think we were only about twenty-four people by the time we got acquired. And we basically, the day got that deal closed, and we instead of showing up to work at our startup in Fremont, we drove to Mountain View and never came back. Wow! And because because literally from 
the moment you founded the business to the uh, moment that it was acquired, we're talking about not even two years, right? Yeah. It, you know what I think of it was? It was kind of like a payback for all the pain we went through in the dial pad one <laughs> turnaround. Right. This was just kind of like that rare startup that is just kind of like raise money, say what you're going to build, build it, launch it, public lights it, someone buys it. Like that, that hardly ever happens that, that cleanly. And again, did you have Google come to you guys or, or what was that process? Yeah. Again, Google came to us. We, we had been, we knew some folks over there and the Google talk team was, had this product manager by the name of Wesley Chan who was really kind of influential and a real early Googler. And he saw us give a demo at Consumer Electronics Show in 2006 and, uh, and thought it was a great product. And they stayed in touch. And then ultimately they, they reached out from Corp Dev and, and suggested we work, quote unquote, work together or work on the same side of the field or some, some acronym like that. And that started the process. Wow. Wow. You know, it's funny because some of the folks that I speak with that, that have been acquired by Google, they say that the email is greetings from Google. <laughs> Did you receive an email like that? <laughs> I wish. No, we actually had some conversations with them for a while. Okay. That would have been a crack up to get them. That's get so funny. Yeah. No, that. I mean, some people are like, what is this spam? You know, and then they look into it and they're like, okay, I better pay attention to this. So, so really <laughs> cool. So was it like uh, kind of like the talk about partnership or did it go like straight into, you know, doing a deal? Yeah, it went straight into doing a deal. I think we were we were considering raising our Series B, and we were talking talking to Google a little bit about, hey, maybe you guys should participate in our Series B, and that was kind of the opening. Of, well, maybe we should talk about combining the companies. And why did you decide to sell? Because I mean, it seems that so basically, um, you guys were at it for less than twenty four months, and uh, and why did you decide? To sell. I mean, didn't you guys think that it was a, a bit early? Didn't you guys think that maybe if the likes of Google were already interested, perhaps you could have raised more money and built a monster company? Yeah, it was interesting. The um, the particularly after the Yahoo experience, like Vincent and I had said, look, we're not going to sell again. You know, we're loving this. We're going to do this. We build it into a massive company. Probably the only one, the only company that that would have enticed us to sell was Google. And at the time, it was kind of like a little bit of, one, I knew Wesley really, really liked what we were doing. And if we didn't sell, he still liked that space. So he was either going to build it or buy someone else. So that was a little bit of a fear. And then the second piece was Google really made it attractive in that they were going to let us run and launch this product inside of Google that ultimately did. We, we launched this Google Voice. And when, as an entrepreneur, you think of like, okay, how can I reach 100 million users instantly? How, you know, like, how can you, the thing you created, get in the hands of so many, you know, so many people at scale? You know, nothing gives you that opportunity more than a company like Google. And so that was ultimately the most attractive part about it. And so, you know, and like you can tell it worked out because we, you know, we stayed at Yahoo for three months. We stayed at Google for three years and we really loved our time there and still love that company. And, 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 you know, they're, they invested in our new company, Rich Miner, the co-founder of Androids on our board. So we still have a really close relationship with Google. That's amazing, man. Obviously, you know, this uh, transaction was a uh, fantastic all around. You know, you were talking about 20 something employees. 
four million invested in, and I believe the press reported that it was a transaction estimated at a hundred million. So I mean, in in under twenty four months is really remarkable. So so you know, it's even more attractive now to to be able myself and then also the listeners to say that we have here the father of Google Voice. So how many people, <laughs> Craig, are you know just out of curiosity, how many people are using Google Voice today? You know, it's interesting. It, it, at the time I had left, we had we had tens of millions of users, um, and you know, for for the longest time, Google didn't put a lot of energy into it, but it just it was just a, another product that was out there. Um, but it's a crack at like now. I have like I have a daughter who's a sophomore in college, and she was telling me that you know her professors at at CU Boulder were, you know, they all had Google Voice numbers and they gave all their students their Google Voice numbers for them to get a hold of them. And it's it's a it's just really interesting to see see how many people have used it and how many people still are using it. And I still run into people who tell me, you know, they were original Grand Central users and they, they still love their Grand Central number. Um, but yeah, so we were able to launch it and, and launch it out to a lot of people. And and I've heard as well that that being in the Google environment and the and the caliber of people that you get to work with is is remarkable. So I guess you know there you had the opportunity to you know gain even more more insights on pattern recognition on talent. So what have you learned about perhaps you know now you're you're at it again with with your next company and we're going to be talking about it. But from a talent perspective, in terms of like pattern recognition, like what have you learned about people that are or could be remarkable? You know perhaps say, to work with. Yeah, we had a uh, we had a really good team at Google Voice. So we came in with twenty folks, and we we probably added another twenty from inside Google. And the Google engineers were just amazing. Like, and, and our existing engineers were amazing as well. But the combination of the two of them was was kind of magical. So, you know, like I guess what I what I've learned through all of this is is you know you want to work with really smart, hungry people, but but humble, you know fair, honest, kind, good people. And we were able to to find those. And so like when we left Google Voice and wanted to go start this, you know, my two technical co-founders were both kind of the engineering leads on the Google Voice team, one on the telephony side, one on the product side. And and then our first handful of hires were either former Google Voice folks or even former Grand Central folks. So it's you know the I'd say as a startup or starting a company like that that is such an advantage when you can start with talented people that you've worked with before that you know yeah. their you know you know their judgment you know their morals you know their work ethic that you don't have to worry about any of that stuff and you can just literally go execute so I'd say I mean it's probably easier said than done but you know the thing I've learned is I only want to work with people like that. Right, right. And, and you know, one thing that, that we were discussing is that at Google, you were obviously for a bit more time than the time that you spent at Yahoo. At Yahoo. So we're talking about three months at Yahoo and, and you know, just almost uh, four, four years uh, at Google. But here you are, you know, you have uh, reportedly um, $150 million done in transactions. You're working at one of the, uh, probably one of the best companies in the world to work for. And then you come with a crazy idea of doing it again. What happened, Craig? Yeah, well, what we realized was, so this was the you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, we realized that the cloud was coming. Um, you know, Amazon's cloud had just launched in 2008. 
the iPhone was changing everything to do with mobile. I mean, I think the iPhone launched in 2008. And so we realized, hey, business is going to change. And it's going to change to a much more mobile workforce. Um, and all this on-premise stuff is going to go away. And we realized that once the on-premise stuff went away for email and documents and calendars, that the idea of having a business phone system tied to a desk made no sense at all. And so we really saw this massive enterprise voice market that's you know, somewhere between 50 and $100 billion a year in size. And we realized it was all going to move away from the Cisco's and the Vias of hardware and into the cloud. And so what we wanted to do was build a basically an enterprise version of Google Voice and really go after all those modern companies as they made the migration to the cloud for their productivity suite. And so we wanted to, you know, truth be told, we wanted to do that internally at Google. Um, unfortunately, right around that time, 2010, Google got really obsessed with Facebook and pulled all these teams into working on their social network project, uh, Google+. Plus. And we weren't very interested in working on the social network stuff. So we decided that was kind of like the, the last straw to go leave and, and continue working on voice over IP and the next gen of it. And this time, instead of focusing on consumers, really focusing on these modern businesses that, you know, that were moving to the cloud for things like Salesforce and CRM and email and docs and, you know, using things like Dropbox and Box and, that's when it just made, you know, it just became really clear to us that that was the future and we wanted to go work on the voice side of that. Got it. And, you know, obviously you guys have a remarkable products here. So you have Dialpad Voice, you have Uber Conference, which I've used myself and, you know, it's really fantastic. Dialpad Call Center. So I guess the, um, like, like, how much capital have you guys raised for this? Because I would imagine that now that this is your, you know, Third time at it, you know, like incredible domain expertise, like people were probably throwing money at you. You know, fundraising is never as easy as it sounds, even when it's relatively easy. Um, but we were, yeah, we were lucky in that we started the company, like I had gone to Google Ventures as an EIR and Bill Maris was running Google Ventures at the time. And Wesley Chan, the guy who did our acquisition, was one of the founding partners there. And so they they knew us really well. And um, and they funded our Series A even before we had like a real set plan of exactly what we were going to do, which to their credit was great. I mean, like it gave us a lot of freedom to explore and try things. Um, and But then we raised our Series B from Anderson Horwitz. And that came from an introduction from Google Ventures to Mark Anderson. And... Mark has a thesis that software is going to eat the world and these on-premise phone systems are things that need to be eaten by software. And so that was a real natural fit. But to, to date, we've done four rounds of financing. Um, we've raised $120 million. Um, we've spent less than 60, so we have more than half of that in the bank. Um, and I think that's a testament to having gone through those real lean times in 2001 to 2005 that were just really frugal with our cash. And we, we treat our cash, you know, as, you know, I mentioned earlier, we treat it like oxygen and you never want to get rid of your oxygen. So, so yeah, we've, we've 
we've been able to raise money relatively easily, but it's still fundraising is still always a process that that generally isn't a very fun distraction for for business. I hear you, and you know it's interesting because it seems like here you guys went to literally the Hall of Fame. I mean, you were alluding to it: Adrian Horowitz, Google Ventures, Felicis Ventures, SoftBank, Iconic Capital. This is the family office. I think it's a Mark Zuckerberg is in there, right? Yeah, it's Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Jack Dorsey, and a few others. Really, really cool. So, so one question that that came to mind is. Um, you have these people that, that, you know, all these VCs that back hyper-growth companies and in many instances, um, institutional investors like, like VCs, they are like growth above everything else. So how do you think, you know, about how do you balance this? Like, how do you go about growth versus profit, especially when it's all about controlling your own destiny when you have, you know, people like this? Yeah, that's exactly. Well, I think, you know, when we were talking about lessons that that I had learned as a lawyer in, in pattern recognition, you, know, you see, I didn't want to be one of those CEOs who just burns cash to just to drive top line if it's super inefficient. So, so and we're lucky, like I tell you, Rich Miner from Google's on our board, Mark Anderson's on our board. Will Griffith from Iconic is on our board. Wesley Chan is now a partner at Felicis. He's a board observer. Um, John Kim from Amasia is on our board. So we have this great board, and they've given us a lot of freedom to run the business the way we think the business should be run. And we've continued to make investments in the platform so we can provide service anywhere in the world. We've continued to make investments in different products you mentioned Google Conference and Dialpad and our call center products. Um, but they haven't been forcing us or pushing us to, to get irrational. They've been really, really sane and rational investors and great partners. So, I mean, like, again, when we talked earlier about as a founder CEO, it's, you know, you have your hand on the throttle and you have to decide when the market conditions are right to really put on the gas and when you have to throttle back. I mean, I, I look at the market now that it's obvious that businesses are moving to the cloud. It's a question of when, not if. Um, I think we have the best products out there to help them do that. And now we've added artificial intelligence to all of our products. So like if you're on a call center, your agents can get coached on the right answers in the middle of a call, which is pretty amazing. So I think now, now we're in position to, to put a little ga more gas on the fire and really push the, the advantages that we have. But and frankly, I wouldn't have done that a year ago. I'm, I'm doing it now because I see our artificial intelligence piece being a really big differentiator in a really big market. Got it. So I guess, hey, I guess you know, all, you have all these different products. So for the folks that are listening, and you know, what 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 does the business model of Dialpad look like? Yeah, so it's a it's a subscription based you know, SaaS business, but it replaces a business's phone system. It's PBX. It replaces a business's call center. It provides a, a dialing solution for their sales teams that, you know, that'll, that'll for your BDR functions, it'll place a ton of outbound calls. Um, and across all those, it gives you real-time artificial intelligence. So we acquired a company called TalkIQ last April, and they were also built in Google Cloud. Their CEO was was 
really good friends with one of my co-founders at Google, um, and it was just a real natural fit. But what that means is if I'm on a business call or say I'm a sales rep, that artificial intelligence is listening in real time. I'm getting a transcription of my conversation on the screen in real time. And if the customer or the prospect asks, has an objection or asks about a competitor, it'll pop up on the screen how to answer that objection or how to, how to talk about that competitor. And it really is dynamically changing how business conversation should go. And we think that that's, you know, five years from now, every business conversation will be that way. Um, but having made this acquisition, we're the only ones who can do it today. Got it. Got it. So I guess uh, I wanted to ask you here, in, then in a future in which, you know, you have fully realized the vision for Dialpad, what, what would that future look like? Yeah, that future would be Uber Conference, Dialpad, Dialpad, support and Dialpad sell all tied together with, with the artificial intelligence across all of them. So, I mean, if you think of what's the last offline data set, it's these conversations you're having with your customers or with your prospects. And, and emails can be captured and analyzed. Chats can be captured and analyzed. But the vast majority of the interactions are voice interactions. And today, those just kind of go into the ether and like, all you get are the notes that the reps take and like potentially enter into Salesforce. So with Dialpad, every single one of those conversations is turned into text and that is stored into Salesforce. It's stored into Zendesk. It's stored wherever you want. And then you can go back and you can search or you can get on another call. You can go review the action items from the prior call and you can go do a search and go back to your analytics and say, hey, over the last six months, how many times was this competitor mentioned? Just gives you like it's literally allows it to be the Google of the spoken word. It lets you search and find great insights about your business that currently today you don't have. Really cool, really cool. And I guess and I guess after being um, involved, I mean, you were you were talking about the the investors that you have, the board members that you have, which is remarkable. What would you say, and especially for the people that are listening that maybe are thinking about raising a round, what are the top traits? That makes an, an investor incredible. You know, it's interesting when you're, when I, every time I've gone fundraising, and I, I've gone fundraising a lot, you know, I did it for Grand Central, I've done four rounds at Dialpad, um, I did it at Dialpad One. Um, every time you talk to investors, like, I'm always looking for kind of that spark. And a lot of times you'll go in there and they'll be, they just won't get it, or they don't see the vision, or they want to talk, really go super, super deep into the numbers and projections and, and things that are really hard to quantify because, as you know, when you're starting a company, your projections of what's going to happen in year five are probably wildly different from what's actually going to happen, but no one knows. Yeah. So I, I'm always looking for just that, like, that connection of, hey, this guy gets it. He believes in this vision. You know, like we're we're gonna go on this journey together. I'd say probably the 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 best fit for that, the two best fits for that, Wesley Chan, who's now at Felicis, um, because he and I have like shared this vision since he acquired Grand Central in two thousand, you know, two thousand seven. Um and Mark Anderson was the second. Like I had never met Mark Anderson before. We had given a bunch of pitches to people and and half of them got it and half of them didn't. 
um, but talking to Mark, like he was finishing my sentences and he had been on the board of Skype. He totally understood voice over IP and how that is a software based solution that's going to completely disrupt this massive, massive voice and communications market. And so like that was, that just gave me absolute confidence that, that he was like the right partner. And we had, we had multiple term sheets. And, um, and it was a pretty easy choice to, to choose Mark and Anderson Horowitz. Got it. Got it. So, so all of these rodeos, Craig, that you've been, you know, uh, at, I mean, so many, uh, you know, times that you've been, you know, at the trench, you know, really pulling things and, and making things happen with, with all of your different companies. So I guess one of the things that, that I always ask uh, guests on the show, and I wanted to ask you the same question, given your, your, your background and track record is, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and, and talk to your younger self and, and be able to give that younger self one piece of business advice before launching a venture, what would that be and why? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think, <laughs> let me think about that. The probably be, there's a lot of times where, where you're not going to have the answers and, and, you just got to be true to, you know, you got to be true to your, um, you know, your core beliefs. And, and my core beliefs are, hey, in all circumstances, we should do what's right for the customer. And we should make it, let's always take everything from the customer's perspective first. And then from there, you go to your values of the company of like, how do you treat your employees and let those drive your decisions? I think... I think like trusting your gut when you don't have all the data is, and I've, I've done a pretty good job of it, but there've been times in my career where, you know, you can get talked into things or things that don't feel completely natural, but you do them because someone else has a really good argument on why to do it. And I'd say, I'd say more than anything, just trust yourself because at the end of the day, you are ultimately responsible for it. You know, being the CEO is a lonely job. Even though you have co-founders and you have really good friends and people you trust, at the end of the day, the decision lies with you and the outcome is your responsibility. And so I'd say, you know, just just trust yourself more. And I think I remember reading a, um, a comment from Andrew Mason when he left Groupon and like it was in his letter to his employees as he was leaving it and like, really struck a note and it was a final comment of, hey, I wish in in some cases where I didn't have all the data, I had just stuck to my gut and just done what I knew was the right thing to do. And I think that that's, that's sometimes a really hard thing to do because you get all these different opinions and people telling you why you should do other things. So that would be the one, one piece of advice I'd, I'd tell my earlier self, just trust yourself and stick to it. Very powerful, Craig. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, Seawalker123 on Twitter. Um, Seawalker123 on uh, LinkedIn. And uh, if you want to just shoot me an email, it's just Craig at dialpad.com. Amazing. Well, definitely you got to respect the 123. That's something that I'm getting on the on the handle. Well, well, Craig, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help 
whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.